Hi, welcome to episode one of Take Me or Leave Me, a podcast about the fine line between failure and success in musical theatre. Exploring the page to stage journey of various musicals that for different reasons have been considered flops. I love and loathe the word flop. I love its soft theatricalism. It sounds like something wonderful that sort of slowly falls into a bowl of jelly. However, it leaves little room for subtlety. It means failure, point blank. Whether the show ran for a thousand performances or one, whether it made millions or lost millions, a flop is a flop. I want to use this time to explore the time artistry that goes into making all these weird and wonderful shows. I think what will always draw people back to these shows is their potential for greatness. So many seem so close, and yet at some hurdle that no one can quite put their finger on, maybe it was the score, maybe it was the casting, maybe it was the set. The show, it falls, just before the finish line. This series, we'll be looking at the shows of some of the biggest names in musicals, the hitmakers. All of them have created some of the most loved and most successful musicals in history, but they've also had their fair share of disasters. What happens? Is it the second album syndrome? Or does a change in production team mean that this time round things are a little more rocky? For whatever reason, the Sondheims, Macintoshes and nuns of this world aren't immune to creating a flop or two. Excitingly, every episode I will be joined by a guest to help hash out all our thoughts and give any helpful advice we can easily dish out with the power of hindsight. This episode I am joined by the very wonderful and extremely talented Jonathan Grant. Can you say a little bit about like what your relationship is with musicals? My relationship with musicals is very long, very passionate, very involved. Yes, it's and yes, very steamy. <laughs> Does hands and bow-legged fossy moves. Oh, that sounds delightful. First fell in love with musical theater when I was in high school at the ripe age of 15 and I randomly started taking a drama class and we took a field trip to a giant city to see Miss Saigon. <gasps> Miss and Saigon. I knew. That's helicopter. what my life had to be. Yes, with the helicopter. Nice. One of my favourite, like, uh, it's just tennis balls on bungee cord. That's how the helicopter is created. Like the propellers of the helicopter. Oh, oh, oh yes. Oh, helicopter, that would be mental. <laughs> All <laughs> yes, made out of tennis balls. I was like, hmm, I think <laughs> maybe I saw an updated version. <laughs> no, there's this really crafty version where they create the entire helicopter out of just cardboard tubes <laughs> and stick. So this is one of those first podcast episode mistakes uh, where I forgot to introduce myself. So my name's Zoe. I started watching movie musicals when I was little with my grandfather and that's what made me love them. And then I started working, when I started working in the theatre, musicals were my absolute favourite thing to work on. So that's a bit about me. Next episode, I'll remember to say my name near the beginning so because we're talking about maybe not the most successful of musicals in terms of success and failure what do you think a musical needs to be a success well to me i find musicals to be successful when they have a huge following that especially if it goes on for decades in the future so to me that means a show can technically flop and only be open for one day in the West End or Broadway. But if 20 years later, people are still playing it and loving it, then 
Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think over these episodes in this series, we aren't looking at that many modern, modern musicals because of that exact mm. thing. We have to take into like account shelf life a little bit because something, like you said, might do badly in one place and might do amazingly somewhere else. Some of those musicals that have done pretty okay in London and then try to get to Broadway and Broadway's like, no, thank you. We don't want that. Uh, that's always <laughs> so bizarre to me how I've always said that it seems to me like things that do really well here in London, when they transfer to Broadway, a lot of things get changed and then they don't do as well and vice versa. People always try and make the changes in order to make it better, but you could just be taking away the magic that made it good. Yeah, of course. It's so hard to tell what that is that makes Mm -hmm. something good. I read a, so I've been doing lots of research for this episode and for various other episodes. I've got a great book called Must Close Saturday by Adrian Wright, which is about British flops. Mm -hmm. And he says in it, Success, however, only exists because of failure. Success romps over failure, swims in clear waters above the sinking depths of failure, rolls on as failure folds up, fades away, hides itself, shame-faced as the curtain falls too soon. So we're going to be talking about some very different shows, uh, which all have had quite different levels of success or failure, depending on how you want to judge it. Uh, We're going to talk about Jeeves, Sunset Boulevard, Love Never Dies, and Stephen Ward. Um, And I will say this also a little like disclaimer, it's very unlikely that either myself or Jonathan will have seen all of these shows. Or any. Exactly. I've seen none. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I probably know Love Never Dies and Stephen Ward the best just because I was working by the time those two were on. We have done our homework and we're only going to discuss things that we can really have an opinion on. So things like score and things like history. I'm not ever going to be like, do you know what was terrible? The lighting design. That that was what <laughs> ruined that show. Um, so first up is Jeeves, which is a musical based on the Jeeves and Worcester books by P.G. Woodhouse. Now, I really like those books. I grew up watching, there's a Hugh Laurie and Stephen Fry television version, which mm. was great. And also there's a brilliant play version, which is called Perfect Nonsense. It's by David and Robert Goodale. And it's so funny and so theatrical. Um, I don't know where I've been that I've not heard of any of these things. I don't know. I feel like it's a very British thing. I don't know whether it translates particularly. Okay. Like, it's quite a niche thing, I think. So okay. I think like as an idea, I could understand why it would be appealing. What do you think? Like if somebody just came to you and was like, let's do this Jeeves of Worcester musical. Do you think? that as an idea is good or do you even think the idea is like a bit meaning if a theater said we want to put the show on or if i had been back in the day and someone said let's write this musical i think if you'd been back in the day just as a starting point i mean i I, read the book (laughs) i would have put on my best what the fuck emoji face and looked at the person like what are you talking about God. But like I said, I've never heard of these things. No, I think that's true. books and such, so... I think my first thinking, if somebody was like, oh, Andrew Lloyd Webber's writing this musical about Jeeves and Worcester, my first thought would be, is Andrew Lloyd Webber funny? At that stage, I feel I would have been like, is that his, is that his thing? He doesn't seem particularly like, silly. Is he qualified for that? <laughs> yeah, I'd be like, what? <laughs> yeah, and I mean, after I listened to it and there was a lot of a banjo influence, I would have thought so the same banjo. thing. So I would bad. be like, well, if this was about 
a synthesizer or a harpsichord sound on yeah. an electric keyboard, I'm sure he could do a great job. But I think banjo, it, also, it feels like he's definitely trying to do something different from what yes. he's previously done. He's like, no, I just want to go down a completely different road and do something else. Have you seen One Man, Two Governors? Because it gives me the feel of, like, not that it's the same time, but they're a bit like, in One Band Two Governors, they have a skiffle band, so like somebody plays it, plays the washboard, and somebody mm-hmm. plays like the spoons. Yeah, I definitely it, get that vibe from it. It gives me that feel of like he's just like I'm just going to go out there, try all these different things. Yes, which I applaud, and I think as artists, composers, yeah. musicians, directors, we should all do that. So none of this definitely. is like a slam towards him, but <laughs> maybe that attributes to why it wasn't his most successful work. Yeah. So, uh, Jeeves, which eventually got renamed the, the far more catchy title of By oh, Jeeves. Jeeves. <laughs> <laughs> um, I feel like if you're going to rename something, it's got to be like a whole different set of words. Yeah. <laughs> Opened at Her Majesty's Theatre on the 22nd of April, 1975. <gasps> My birthday. Not the year, not the year, everyone. I was going to say, hold on, hold on. <laughs> So, so it's Her Majesty's Theatre. Her Majesty's Theatre, which is a huge theatre as it's well. Big. Like, it's a big one. It's, it's not like the Donmar. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it stayed open for 38 performances. So just about a month. The first interesting thing that sticks out to me is that Jeeves was written in between Jesus Christ Superstar and Evita. So it's like kind of like we were saying before, like it doesn't seem the same scale as those yeah. kind of things and I think it's like I think that's purposeful I think he obviously wanted to do something different so Jesus Christ Superstar and Evita were written with Tim Rice mm-hmm. Legend. Uh, and after Jesus Christ Superstar Rice suggested um, writing a musical about Eva Peron and he was apparently so obsessed with Eva Peron that he's na- he named his first daughter Eva after her Ooh. Proper, proper big fan. Dedication. <laughs> Lloyd Webber wasn't as keen. He was like, okay, I've got an idea that we should do this Jeeves and Worcester musical. Rice was like, fine, but can we come back to the Argentina themed one? Lloyd Webber was like, whatever. They've got their idea. They're going to do the Jeeves and Worcester musical when Tim Rice goes, oh my God, I've never written a book musical. I just do lyric on the big rock opera concept albums that we do. And I don't do like those talky scenes in between. Uh, Andy's like, don't worry, we'll get someone else in to write the boring bits in between our awesome songs. And that person is Alan Akeborn, which is strange to me. He's such a British, like, comedic playwright, which then when I said it out loud, makes a lot of sense, because they're like, we need somebody to come on who's funny, who can write the funny (laughs) bit, who can write the jokes. So the three of them sit down, then Alan says, I don't, I think three people is, is one too many. And Tim says, well, I'm not bothered anyway. I want to write a musical about Eva. And Andy's like, Jesus, Tim, we know you want to write a musical about Eva Peron. Shut up. You get started on that. I'll write this Jeeves and Worcester musical with Al. And then that'll be fine. And that was all word for word transcript, that little scene that I just played out for you, Jonathan. And you did it exquisitely. <laughs> I saw it happening right in front of my eyes. It made it more real for everyone. Yes. Um, so, yeah, so Lloyd Webber, Aikborn, start writing this musical. Um, and Aikborn takes on writing the lyrics for songs, which is, I think, a bit weird because Aikborn has never written a song in his life. Mm. According to his biography, he'd written poems at school that rhymed. So, oh, so very so, qualified he is. There's that. What more do you want from people? 
Um, so then they brought on Eric Thompson as the director, and we're mm-hmm. all ready to go. We're going to do it, go to rehearsal. Uh, Thompson had never directed a musical before, so uh, yeah. So it in the words, like a part of Hollywood on Netflix. It does, it does. So in the words of uh, Eightborn himself, no one knew what they were doing. It was a disaster. Hmm. Eightborn's a zinger about. Uh, he was asked um, how he felt about writing the next big Andrew Lloyd Webber musical, and he said, um, "I think musicals are pretty damn boring." but I hope this is a bit different. <laughs> oh, Turn up. I love his honesty. <laughs> All that exists uh, of the original cast, of the, the original version of Jeeves is a song list and the odd copies of some cast recordings because there was an original cast recording. But Lloyd Webber um, got some advice from American theatre director Harold Prince and withdrew all copies of the recording so that he could reuse the songs on pre on next projects. Oh, okay. So, uh, <laughs> like, you don't know, something from Phantom could actually be from this banjo, mm. <laughs> banjo musical about rich people being That's lazy. fascinating. <laughs> um, so... When the musical changed its name and it was reworked in 1996, so like quite a big gap. So it was like 1975 it was on, didn't do well. Then they came back to it nearly like two, like nearly two decades later. Wow. Um, and reworked it and did it again. And that's mm-hmm. when it got called by Jeeves. And only three songs from the original 1975 production are in the 1996 production. Wow, so does that mean all the other songs sucked or I were all the other songs used for other shows? All the other songs that were in other shows. <laughs> just actually all of Andrew Lloyd Webber's whole hits after Jeeves were just all for the rear. Like, oh, just recycled Jeeves. <laughs> um, so we're going to listen to one of the songs called Travel Hopefully, which is from the, so there's basically like three reincarnations of Jeeves. 1975 original, 1996 when it got done in London again and then 2001 when it went to Broadway. So we're listening to a song from that version because it's the only one I can find. Sorry, world. Ah, thank you. That's much better. I've invariably found that feet kept on the ground allow the grass to grow. Oh, this is really rather splendid once you get the hang of it. For, For those of you who listened to that were like, what is happening? Um, the like the setup of the song is that they've sort of they're on a car journey and they've made the car out of things that he would have in his flat I think so it's like a sofa and like some cardboard boxes and so that's why he does like the car noise so I feel like when it starts it feels like quite a traditional Lloyd Webber song yeah I, I mean feel it like in its basic thing it's quite it's, it's yeah pretty, I sort of get it straightforward I, to me I hear it um, there is another one that I was that I will play as well just quickly just so we can get another sense of like how that show goes which is also from the original and was kept when it was reworked uh, this is called Banjo Boy Banjo Boy Banjo Boy play a number for me won't you play that melody when you start to playing mama starts to swaying she's right there with them solving that rhythm Banjo Boy there you go there's some there's some banjo related things and that sounds like no one spits like gaston (laughs) i should know the words but it does sound like one of those sort of like drinking song type yes so yeah but i feel like the score's not horrendous it's okay 
Yeah. Yeah, I don't think I'd be upset if I bought a ticket to that. I'd be like, yeah. I think it would be different if I saw it. I might actually give yeah. it a go this weekend because yeah, visually yeah. put together with what I listened to might make more sense because so much of what I was listening to, I was just like, literally, yeah. I wrote in my notes, what the fuck is going on? It's quite one of those, it is. It's one of those ones where, because there's certain scores, aren't there, where you can listen to the whole thing and you get the whole story. Then there's others where you're like, what's happening? What? Yes. In What scene in between this song and the last song has happened for this to make yes. any sort of sense? Very confusing. Uh. <laughs> and also in this, in the album I listened to, there is so much talking. There like, is. There's a lot of talking. So talk. much dialogue. There's a lot of talky, talky, singy talking. Um, so if we go back to 1975, cast yourself back for a moment. Um, Rehearsals were underway and they were due to open in Bristol to try it out in Bristol before it got into Her Majesty's Theatre. So the Saturday night before opening in Bristol, they had never run the show. Like, not once. They had never run it. So when the curtain rose for the first audience, no one knew how long the running time was going to be because they'd never run it. It was over four hours long. Oh my God, no. Four (laughs) hours plus banjo plus too much dialogue. So it was like... I need a pair of so that is what I think it's a it's meant to be like this frothy, fun musical about rich people and it's and instead, four hours and, it, it's an and, it, and it's running like longer than like most productions of Hamlet. Jesus <laughs> so long. So obviously Oof. they were like, We have to cut this, it can't go into London and be four hours long. Cut, cut, cut. So they cut one of their stars. So they had an actress called Betty Marsden, who was famous for being in carry on films. She was fired on opening night. Oh. Before she left her dressing room, they were like, you're gone. She was like, oh. okay, thanks very much. Harsh. I know. So obviously no one felt safe once she was fired because she's like on the posters. Like they're like Betty Marsden and Jeeves. <laughs> and oh, like, not anymore. But yeah, they were right not to feel safe because on the Friday before the London opening, Eric Thompson, the director, was fired. Oh my. And I still Ooh. like, for all my research, I can't quite work out why he was fired. It just seems like they needed someone to blame for Bristol going so badly. So they were like, mm. director's the person to blame. You're gone. Oh. But I think it was like too, I think it was a bit too late by then. So the reviews came in, overall negative, And yeah, show closed after a month. So 1996, like I said, about two decades later, they revived the show, do loads of rewrites, brand new title, by, <laughs> of one word. Um, <laughs> and it opened uh, in the bright, Lights the gleaming, glittery, snazzy city of Scarborough. Do you know where Scarborough is, Jonathan? No, but I do know. Are you going oh. to Scarborough Fair? Right. The good thing is, my geography is so bad, I don't really know where Scarborough is. <laughs> um, I, yeah, bad geography and just being too London centric for my own good. But Eightbourne has a theatre there. I do know that. So I think that's why they opened in Scarborough. Um, it then came into the West End, had a limited, was always planned to have a limited run, just a 12-week run. It was Smart. so it was so popular that they it got extended in the end by eight to eight months. So it got an wow. eight, eight months after 12 weeks. Dear God. Um, so that's pretty good. So obviously, like, the rewrites were good, really beneficial. Uh, then in 2001, so then, yeah, like about five years later, it went to Broadway. Now, the reviews of Broadway are mixed. The New York Times said what they've come up with is a slapstick farce reliant on routine stumble-bum business with rare forays into original jokery and only one episode of inspired lunacy, unenlivened by a score of 13 formula songs. Like, it's like, 
Unenlivened. (laughs) I also love Stumblebum. So it was quite conservative in its budget. So it was reported that it cost 1.9 million to put on, which again, I feel like when you see it, I want to know where that 1.9 million went. Like, are boxes expensive during I think most of it went to Andrew Lloyd Webber, probably. Yeah, I feel like a lot of it went on wages and not much of it went on the design. Other stuff. Um, but obviously 2001, September 2001 had just happened and because of that, a lot of shows on Broadway felt like the impact of that, people not wanting to go to shows necessarily. So a lot of investors had pulled out of By Jeeves and reportedly Lloyd Webber put up most of that 1.9 million himself oh. to put that show on. Um, <clears throat> so it, before it closed, it got 73 performances in, which I think is pretty good. I, I can't imagine that Two they had planned for it to run for ages on Broadway. I couldn't find anything whether it, it wasn't a limited run. It had it was just an open ended thing, but they might have made their money back. Um I doubt it. I doubt it as well. In <laughs> two trying, months no. Trying to be positive. The tickets were extortionate. They were like Hamilton prices just <laughs> <laughs> To see a cardboard car. And a whole load of people with shoes on their knees for one bit. <laughs> all have that bit to look forward to. I'm not going to tell you any more information. Oh. But I think, yeah, the, the main problem with why By Jeeves hasn't really succeeded seems to be that it isn't a very Lloyd Webber show. No. I think that seems to be the main thing. It was like, he had Jesus Christ Superstar where he was like reinventing what musical was. Like it wasn't Rogers and Hammerstein. It wasn't like that sort of golden age of Broadway show. It was something very different. And then after you've done that, you sort of go into this music hall style of quite old fashioned British jokes about falling over kind of thing. And it just doesn't seem to fit. I really imagine that people, you know, when you get to be big and famous, your name kind of means something to people. So if I was someone who went to see this and I was drawn to it because of Andrew Lloyd Webber, I would have left thinking, what? was that 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 is just not that's just not his style maybe it was the best time for him to do it in a way because it was so early on in his career maybe he needed to do that to be like oh actually no i'm quite comfortable doing my thing Mm -hmm. so after jeeves happened lloyd webber went back to tim rice and that would be their last collaboration on evita uh he then did phantom cat starlight express and those like phantom cats and starlight express to me are all insane ideas for musicals like so Bizarre. Like Starlight Express, I think especially. Like if anyone yeah. like it's gonna be about trains and they're gonna go around on roller skates, I'd be like, get out of my office. It's also bizarre, always been bizarre to me that it's quite a good touring one. I'm like, how is it a good touring show? Like how it's safe so can that be? <laughs> like, what? Yeah. Like, no no, it's just us, some roller skates, let's go everywhere. <laughs> what could go wrong? Um, so then in nineteen ninety one, this is where we get to our next show. Some people got a glimpse of what would be Lloyd Webber's next project. Uh, so this is some, something I found out during my research. Lloyd Webber has a private festival called the Sidmonton Festival every year in the grounds of his country estate in Hampshire. Uh, I know, fancy. So that How do we get invited? <laughs> I don't think we're his type of people. Um, uh, yeah, so he invites people who work in theatre, film, TV, uh, and he they test the commercialism and viability of projects, not just Andrew Lloyd Webber projects, but mainly those. And I just feel like it sounds like a, like, sounds awful. 
but also brilliant at the same time. I mean, it sounds like something I want to be a... Andrew, if you're listening, I will learn to play the banjo if you invite me. Yeah, we'll take tickets. Yeah. Um, So that was when people first saw saw the first working of Sunset Boulevard. So it was 1991, and um, this is my favourite bit. The person who wrote the lyrics for the 1991 version, like first outing, um, was a lawyer called Amy Powers, who'd never written a musical before in her life. Wow, that's impressive. It wasn't received well, that was it. Everyone was like, no thank you, we don't want to see that again. But Lord Webber stuck with it, and then the festival in 1992, and Broadway's own Patti LaPone was playing yes. Desmond. Am I saying that right, by the way? Is it Patti LaPone or Patti LaPone? I have heard both. Okay, maybe I'll mix Although, the first time I heard someone say Patti LaPone, I fell off of my chair laughing because I thought they were <laughs> ridiculous. But yeah. simultaneously questioned my entire life and career, thinking, have I been doing this wrong? It's like the quinoa of... Uh, yeah. Oh. I think I said that wrong anyway. Anyway. <laughs> and then the feedback was like overwhelmingly positive, like super good, like this is the best thing ever. Now, Sunset Boulevard, the film, is one of my favourite films I'd almost say of all time. Like I love Billy Wilder. Mm. I love it. I love him so much. Um, and it's one of those things that to me seems so perfect in its original medium that it seems very risky to transfer it. Yeah. To another medium. Mm-hmm. It is also one of those things that can be really hit or miss. Films about films. Yeah. Can really have a tendency to not be very good. Like theatre about theatre can be a bit like, ooh. Mm-hmm. You have to see one more interpretation of what backstage is like. I'm going like, <laughs> to throw up. Um, so I think, uh, but having said that, as soon as the film came out, there was always a musical in discussion throughout history of making oh, about it. So Gloria Swanson, who played Norma Desmond in the film, she was in talks with somebody to make a musical that would feature her, so she'd be in the musical as well. And then that never really happened. And then Stephen Sondheim got the rights to make a musical, but gave it up when Billy Wilder said he never thought it would work as a musical. He only thought it would work as an opera. So Stephen Sondheim was like, no, thank you. So idea-wise, do you think good idea? I think it's better of an idea than (laughs) by Jeeves. It's got Um, less banjos in it. There are banjos in Sunset Boulevard. Oh, I said it's got less banjos. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I, he, once he did banjos once, he had to improve them in all shows forevermore. Yeah, I mean, when I started listening to this, the first thing I wrote was, okay, this sounds like a story. There's substance yeah, yeah. here. And music-wise, I mean, the rhythms and the, the haunting motifs, like it's such complex music. That yeah. I thought it was quite beautiful and chilling. I really wish I have would have seen a production of it sometime. I think they're going to make a film out of it, actually. Oh, my voice went weird. A musical film? <laughs> a musical film. Ooh, okay. No, yeah, a film of the musical. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so maybe you will. Maybe you'll get that opportunity. Yes. Um, it took a year for the production to come together. So in 1993, it opened at the Adelphi. The reviews were mixed, so... The negative press was mostly to do with the treatment of the source material. Critics complained that Lloyd Webber had diluted the story so that it felt a lot less dark, a lot less sort of nasty. It was a bit mm. sort of, a bit nicer. Mm-hmm. Um, but Frank Rich of the New York Times said that the music is the most interesting I've yet encountered from this composer. And I think that's definitely true. I think that's very true. I think it feels like all the good things coming together in this yeah. kind of, in this score. I don't disagree with that. No, I think, but all the reviews were unanimous on one front, and that was their praise of Patti LuPone. 
is in the role of Norma Desmond. She carried on with it. As they should, yes. Um, Variety said, the musical's talking point will doubtless be Lapone's Norma, which manages rightly to honour and then put aside memories of Gloria Swanson. There's always been an element of outsized theatricality to Lapone, who, perhaps for that reason, seems more quintessentially a person of the theatre than most current Broadway stars. And I think that's right. I think she, like, is a, the perfect person for that sort of... It's a very theatrical role. Oh, yeah. But obviously, like, if you had someone who was, like, too theatrical, if that makes sense... It would just or seem, not theatrical enough. Or I mean, not theatrical, imagine yeah. a Dina Menzel playing it's Norma like Desmond. Fine, yeah, it's like a fine line, isn't it? Like you can't have somebody who's not theatrical at all, and at the yeah. same time, like if you don't have Ed, if you have someone who's too too much, it's just as a caricature, isn't mm-hmm. it? I think we should listen to the theme song, which is definitely, I'm sure, a term that Andrew Lloyd Webber himself uses. <laughs> yes. Uh, and this is who is singing it? This is from the original London production. So this is Kevin and. Oh. Kevin, what a voice. Oh, oh my God. For tomorrow's execution Sunset Boulevard Ruthless Boulevard Destination for the stony-hearted Sunset Boulevard Lethal Boulevard Everyone's forgotten how they started Here on Sunset so good his voice just makes you want to sing it's it's a great song i think that song is very good yeah it's a great way Uh, to start a show so sunset was uh, carried on for a year at the adelphi and then it closed for three weeks so that it could be updated to match the los angeles production now it's quite a strange move to do this for a successful show so it was production was doing well sales were doing well so normally you do that sort of thing if a show's really needs yeah. saving like you don't normally do it to a successful show so it's quite weird yeah and also weird that they've never done that in 30 years with phantom yeah because obviously it's quite a financial thing to do like you're losing quite a lot of bit of money yeah. even les mis has done it Come yeah on. um so also they were about to open on broadway so it seemed weird to like close it lose that momentum mm-hmm. or something else so um, when they opened again, after they'd had these rehearsals to update the West End sunset, they had a new Norma Desmond, which was uh, another Broadway star, Betty Buckley. Um, and she got some great reviews, but everyone was like, uh, where's Patty? She's just been nominated for an Olivier. So rewind four months, the Los Angeles production of Sunset, Glenn Close plays Norma Desmond and everyone, she's wowing everyone. Patty's wearing crowds in London. Makes sense. Girl can't be in two places at once. It does become problematic, however, when Lapo gets a phone call from her agent as she's preparing to go, like literally before she goes on stage to do an evening show. Mm. And he says, although Andrew Lloyd Webber's company will neither confirm or deny, Glenn Close will begin rehearsals as Norma Desmond in New York on August 1st. So Patty Lapone was being fired. So because her understanding was that she would always transfer with the show. When the show went to Broadway, Patty Lapone would go with it. That's um, the agreement. She describes in her autobiography now this is something i would super recommend people watching randy rainbow does a lip sync <laughs> this section of her autobiography which describes <laughs> how she was fired from sunset boulevard and it's I'm one of the best things i've ever seen <laughs> um but she says she took her rage out that evening by smashing a floor lamp at mirrors wig stands anything else in her dressing room <laughs> for throwing said floor lamp out of a second floor window um then her company manager comes in she says and this is this is in her words i've been fired from the new york production i'm not going on tonight i don't know when i'll return bye 
Oh my god, not dramatic at all. Which I love. Can and I'm can you imagine being that understudy who's like, uh, you have ten minutes yeah. to prepare? You have two seconds, um, and people aren't <laughs> going to be happy about it. Um, so Close was leaving the Los Angeles production to go to Broadway, and Lapone would finish her London contract and then leave Sunset for good. So two problems with that quite costly problems uh if glenn close was leaving the los angeles production they still wanted to keep that open so they needed a new star for that so faye dunaway of bonnie and clyde fame mm-hmm. uh she was announced as the as los angeles's next norma desmond a couple of weeks into rehearsal with her lloyd weber says they're cancelling the los angeles production the reason being dunaway's singing voice isn't up to the standard they expect for the role <laughs> So why can't Patty just go to Los Angeles? I think Patty was. I think Patty was. She like, was. She was a bit yeah, over it. I think Angela said <laughs> to her by then. Yeah. Um, so Lloyd Webber takes the cast of the Los Angeles production to New York, and Dunaway files a six million dollar lawsuit against Lloyd Webber. Oh my God! A million dollars for breach of contract, five million for defamation. Oh. Now, that's not the end of lawsuits against Lloyd Webber because mm-hmm. Lapone also sued him for breach of contract seeking $1 million in damages. Both Dunaway and Lapone got paid out of those lawsuits. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lapone got the whole million and Dunaway settled out of court. So we don't know how much she got. Lapone spent some of her win on what she refers to as the Andrew Lloyd Webber Memorial Pool, <laughs> which is a swimming pool in her house in Connecticut, which I love so much um yes. how much do we think dunaway got i think she must have got like a million as well no at least i mean i would say like two or three probably oof. at least half of what she what she oof, oof. wanted um one of my favorite things about researching that as well is um this is a quote from dunaway's lawyer andrew lloyd Webber's company was very like this is just silly like you shouldn't be doing a lawsuit it's just a fact like you're not good enough singer that should oof. be fine so um and the quote from Dunaway's lawyer is, um, this is a very determined person. She can and will sing if necessary. <laughs> I'm just like, I just love the idea that like in a court, they'd be like, sing, sing now, Faye Dunaway, so people can see that you are up to the task. I think people should put that on their CVs. <laughs> I have three years of jazz. I can and will sing. After those legal battles, Sunset Boulevard opened on Broadway in November 1994. So it opened um, with the highest advanced sales in Broadway history at the time, which was $37.5 million in tickets. Oh my God. In the early 90s, that's a lot of money. When it opened, which is... So, obviously, how how is this failure? Like, so far, it's like, good reviews, good show, good score, all all good, good money. That's all I know. Last things are paid off by the advanced sales. Um, Yeah. So it all seems fine. Um, and also, Tonys. It won seven Tonys at the 49th Annual Tony Awards that year. Quite nice. It won Best that Musical. Is seven more Tonys than I have. That's seven, six more than I have. I have a secret Tony. That <laughs> I um, best Musical, Best Book of a Musical, Best Original Score, Best Leading Actress in a Musical were some of the big things that they, they got other things as well. So uh, do you want to know who they beat to get these, get these array of accolades? Who did they beat? Oh, nice. Um, no one. Oh. There, there, were, there were no other, uh, there was no competition. Sunset Boulevard was the only show nominated for Best Book and Best Score. Uh-huh. And Glenn Close had one other nominee in her category. Oh. So, um, Who was that? I feel very bad for her. I know. I was not you. 
so Vince Campbell of the New York Times put it this way, awards don't really tell you much when the competition is feeble or simply non-existent, as was mm. the case the year that Sunset Boulevard won its Tony. Such prizes are for use in advertising and promotion and to impress the folks back home, <laughs> which yeah. I think is damning if ever I've heard it. But I think it is interesting. Like I think for all we said about how good the score is, if it was any other Tony year when they had like four other competitors mm -hmm. of best original book, or even like two. Yeah. You know I mean, like it I wonder I wonder whether we'd be like, oh no, definitely blah de blah would have yeah, or I mean, if, that one open. If that would have opened the same year as Book of Mormon or Wicked or yeah, I think it, something like it's, that. It'd be interesting to see how it does. Now I think mm -hmm. It's also worth saying that, like, it's we have to use awards loosely when you're discussing <laughs> the merit of something. I think that they're, they're a good judge of how good something is, but they're also like to be taken with a pinch of salt, I guess. Absolutely. But it did seem that Sunset success seemed to be a bit of a facade because so during the summer of 1995, Sunset cost roughly seven hundred and thirty thousand dollars to run weekly. Oh my god, that's a lot of money. A lot of money. Uh, but it made at the box office roughly 720000 So I ain't, I ain't good at math, but I know that that's not... Those aren't that's the numbers that we want. <laughs> it also seemed that despite how much money Lloyd Webber had paid to get Glenn Close in, to Sunset, in, or what he ended up paying due to all those legal costs, their relationship seemed pretty strained as well. So the really <laughs> useful company, which is Lloyd Webber's production company, they inflated the ticket sale numbers by $150,000 to make it look as though Close wasn't the only draw. So the week that she was on holiday, they bumped their numbers to make it seem like they'd sold the same as when she was there. So they lied. They lied. Um, and she, Close, Glenn Close didn't react well to this and she published an open letter in variety of which i'm going to read some of it to you now and it's Ooh. it's stunning that's all i can say <laughs> it's, it's great uh if i could leave sunset tomorrow i would if i could leave it in may when my contract says i can't believe me i would at this point what is making me stay is my sense of obligation to all the people who are holding tickets until july 2nd i am furious and insulted I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that my performance turned Sunset Boulevard around. I made it a hit. It has existed on my shoulders. And yet, wow. a representative of your company went out of their way and lied to try to make the public believe that my contribution to this show is nothing. That Karen Mason's performance is equal to mine and that my absence has <sighs> absolutely no effect whatsoever on all the thousands of dollars that supposedly kept pouring into the box office. It sickens me to be treated with such disregard. Oh my God. Well done. Uh, so Lloyd Webber's response mainly was just to state the accusation of inflating the sales was idiotic and that the show is a spectacular success, i.e. with or without close. Also, this is brilliant. Betty Buckley, who was Norma in London, replaced close on Broadway once her contract was over and said to a gossip reporter at the time, I play Norma much younger than close. <laughs> Which is so funny, especially how Glenn came back and did it like no. twenty years later. It's so fun. that the age of Norman Desmond thing is is messing yeah. my mind a bit. I'm like, oh is she thirty or is she like hundred? <laughs> By the time it closed, it closed in 1997 and had done 977 performances, um, which is good. Like, yeah, yeah, props to you. 
but Frank Richards in New York Times estimated that Sunset Boulevard had lost near or above $20 million. It's not good. Which, uh, making it what he calls a flop hit. And yeah, so I think it's a very different success failure ratio than like by Jeeves that we just talked about. Yes. Uh, and like we said, we definitely think it's a better show. Scores good, stories mm-hmm. good. Seems like all the actors in it were top notch. Like, yeah. do you think it makes you wonder whether the amount of lawyers' fees alone, like all the drama of it, is worth it? Like, is it that's such a lot of money? It is, but it does make me think. Like you said, lawyers' fees. I mean, advertising people pay out the nose for advertising for yeah. shows. Yeah, um, yeah. So if if budgets like that were super super high, that can also contribute to it. Yeah. And who could say if if those things didn't happen, would it have made as much money or more money? Like who yeah. knows? You know that the obviously like the phrase "all press is good press." Yes. I do wonder like that as well. Like it was in the papers so much all this lawsuit mm-hmm. stuff. It's just like so crazy that somebody would be like I think that he like Andrew Weber himself would be taken to court over that, like yeah. for who he was at the time. And that um, scathing letter. Oh, I'll never oh, recover from that. that. <laughs> I love that letter so much. I think I might get that <laughs> framed. So we had Sunset Boulevard and then Lloyd Webber sort of flitted between collaborators. So he never stuck with the same person twice in a row. So he'd had Tim Rice, he'd had Charles Hart, who he created like those big successful things with. And then he just changed, changed it up a lot. And I think that's quite noticeable of what he creates next. Then he returns to collaborators. So he goes back to Charles Hart, who wrote Phantom with him, and he goes back to Ben Elton. And they write, Love Never Dies. Love which is also called dies. the often ridiculed paint never dries, which is my favourite bit of theatre journalism, I think, <laughs> ever. It's a sequel to Phantom. It's set predominantly on Coney Island. I don't think it's something anyone knew that they needed or wanted. One of my things that I like a lot that I found out about it is that uh, when the project was announced, Lloyd Webber said, uh, I don't regard this as a sequel. It's a standalone piece. Only to then later in a different interview say, Clearly, it's a sequel. So he, he obviously knew what he was doing. This hasn't worked for me. Love Never Dies kind of doesn't have as much drama around it as Sunset. It was meant to. It was meant to do this thing, which I've never really heard of before. So when it opened in the West End, it was meant to simultaneous, almost simultaneously, open on Broadway. Mm. Um, so like not on the same day, but like within like pretty quick within a month of each other or something. The Broadway version was meant to open. Um, the negative press around Love Never Dies when it opened was so bad that most of the producers pulled out and so it never opened on Broadway. To this day. So let's just give a quick of a little bit of Ramin Kamaloo. Oh! I feel like I said that wrong as well. I mean, I call him Ramin personally. I think, um, that's, I think you probably have said all the names right during this and I have said none of them right. I I wrote in my notes that he could sing to me all day, any day, every day. And weeks pass and months pass, seasons fly. Still you don't walk through the door. And in a haze I count the Silent days. Yeah, 
Love Never Dies is that I just don't know why you'd make a sequel of the music. Yes, that is... Um, I that on the head. I fi- yeah, I feel like nothing particularly is terrible about it. Like the reviews, like I said, weren't good. Uh, ben Brantley of the New York Times said, a big oh, he's thought... He's so vicious, but uh, like such a good writer. <laughs> like this is this this will also be a podcast about my love of theatre criticism. <laughs> oh, it's horrendous, but it's also that's some good writing. You could become a critic of theatre critics. Oh, that would be good. Be a good my, fav- my favorite is Elizabeth Vincentelli. So yeah, he said a big gaudy new show, and he might as well have he is the Phantom might as well have a kick me sign pasted to his backside. <laughs> <laughs> Also, when I was listening to it the other day, one of the things that confused me the most is, and this is maybe like Phantom fans will be like, obviously it's this. Why does Madame Geary have a French accent, but her daughter doesn't, nor does the Phantom who comes from France? Oh, that drives me crazy. I know it's it's one of those annoying things to point out when people are like, you should be focusing on the story and the music. And I'm like, no, I know. But it's also slightly distracting for me that there's like this very French person. And I'm like, but you're all... But this is set in New York and you've all come from Paris. Like we've all seen the first one where you all live in <laughs> Paris. For me, I find it also quite Andrew Lloyd Webber by numbers. It feels like he's dialing it in a bit. Like there's so many songs that start. And I'm like, this is, oh, were they doing that thing where they like repeat a song from Phantom? So mm. we know, and it's not, it's just a like Phantom in a different key. Yeah. A lot of these songs sounded quite similar to other songs. Variation on even- Phantom pieces and other musicals i was like this is familiar this is familiar also i there was a lot of plot things i didn't understand it's not a subplot it's a main bit of the plot but meg who was in the in the phantom of the opera is christine's friend is also in this one and she seems to sort of be not in love with the phantom but like really keen for his approval and like and i'm like yeah. but how do you know what yeah. are you just like a christine mark two but she gets ignored a lot and i just find lots of it really confusing yeah it's all weird and then i find it confusing that the, the phantom and christine have slept together because i was like oh i thought the whole thing was like it's not like it is sexual but it's more so more about the music but then you're saying oh no it's just se- like it is sexual and there was just so many plot points that i was just yeah. like and how old is she in phantom of the opera is she not like 16 that's something as well Gross. that we'll come on to with the last musical that I find like, I don't know if it's the older he gets or it's just, or maybe it's always been there. It's just one of those, but attitudes towards sex and women and young women is quite Ugh. weird and a bit. Um... For me, there was a big like Miss Saigon aspect to this of like this poor man with the deformed face. Like he slept with a girl once. One He had one lovely passionate night, ran away, left her, has a kid and then just pines after her for yeah. ages and ages to the point he has an automaton up oh, there. So creepy. So, so creepy. creepy. You basically have a robot sex doll of a girl yeah. that you slept with once ten years ago. Oh, stop thinking Let about it go. Her. Like you should you should stop thinking about her though, really. Ugh, really. Typical white man But also like I think the the Raul character's a bit strange and like I was like, Ugh. oh I thought he was like a nice guy. Exactly. Love interest in Phantom, and now he seems to be like a villain in this. Yes, and I wrote when he sings, "Why does she love me?" I was like, "Bitch, she doesn't. She loved your money and your unmasked face, and now you're just a dick." But that's the thing. So I'm like, not only does it have not that many clear ideas of its own, it also seems to ruin some clear ideas that were in Phantom. Mm-hmm. Andrew Webber doesn't write doesn't really write anything original, original in terms of like there's always some sort of source material if that's a book or a film or yeah. an event. And this, the source material for this 
is a book but it isn't a book by the same person as phantom was written by and i feel like that really yeah muddies the water like but there's important thematic stuff that goes through phantom book that you've obviously digested and taken and maybe don't need to be explicit about but it's there and if source material if the next one's written by someone different then how yeah and do you think they have to pay royalties to the person who wrote this book that it's based off of and the person who wrote the original book that phantom was based off like double royalty i didn't know they have to pay royalties at all for the first phantom because it must be out of copyright oh quite old i don't but i don't know maybe they do so the last thing i want to talk about is uh, a project that was announced in 2013 when lloyd Webber announced that his next project would be a musical based on the events of the profumer affair uh he was collaborating with the sunset boulevard writing team it's called like a british scandal because it's like about sex but obviously as british people we're like what don't tell me anything <laughs> <laughs> but when i so when I was looking into like Stephen Ward musicals, I don't know who Stephen Ward is. It's about the Profumo affair. I was like, oh, okay, Christine Keeler. And it's like, well, she's in it, but it's not really about her. John Profumo, he's in it. It's not really about him. It's about this guy called Stephen Ward, who I've never heard of. I think the majority of people haven't heard of him. No. Some quick goggling later told me that Stephen Ward uh, was the person who introduced Christine Keeler and John Profumo, um, and that most of their meetings took place in Ward's house. So he's like the orchestrator of that scandal. Um, and his involvement in the scandal led to his arrest he was charged with immorality offenses which is one of those brilliant Mm. like 60s 50s things (laughs) like a plethora of things that like (laughs) i just don't like you yeah immorality (laughs) offense um but he took an overdose of sleeping pills and he died before the verdict of his trial was announced so he committed suicide so it's like tragic and there's sex involved and there's history and i think those are lots of elements of a musical yeah if you think about it that way it kind of makes sense i mean for me as an idea i think it's love never dies level of bad idea because i just think it's so obscure i'm trying to think of like other things where characters are not known and then become known same i'm starting to wonder that as well quite hard because i even think if you look at things like hamilton everyone still knew who alexander hamilton was even if you have like just the understanding that he's the guy on the ten dollar bill you know what i mean like even if you don't know any history you know you have some like place yeah. of him whereas Stephen Ward is literally like and lots of people have said it's just a terrible name for a musical as well like it just all it just sounds bad that <laughs> <Like>, was <laughs> quite boring but I think it's, it's just one of those things where I just can't see why it's about him mm-hmm. I think the Profumo affair is quite an important part of British history it's got like those elements that I was talking about but just to, to focus solely on that guy seems yeah. strange like there, was a, there was a recent dra- TV dramatization of the Profumo Affair, which is really good, actually. And James Norton plays Stephen Ward. Oh. And, like, he's in it. Like, he's obviously really key to it, but I just don't know if that... And also, like, lots of people have said, why in 2013 are basically all the women involved still really bit part mm-hmm. in it? It seems so strange. Yeah. I'm going to play two songs because there's two quite different... There is the, the standard Andrew Lloyd Webber ballady song, which I think is not bad and then there's some other like sort of attempts at satire i think that maybe are a bit more hit and miss so this is this side of the sky which is sung by alex hansen who is an awesome singer by the way which i think is one of the things mainly this score Very is how good. good a singer he is underused i think in musicals as well oh yeah there's another way to heaven I am here right now Look around So many 
pleasures for the taking. The other song to show the other side of Stephen Ward is a song called You've Never Had It So Good. Do you like S and M? I don't mind one of them. Here you can have it off with some old English toff. Who is that in the mosque? They won't say, so don't ask. Could be some royal duke, possibly King Farouk. You've never had it so good. You've never had it so in the stage show performed as an orgy, mm. which is something that I just don't think, no. Shouldn't no. be done. No, not Unless on Andrew Lloyd Webber. It's so yeah. weird. I think Andrew Lloyd Webber has this weird thing where I feel in my mind he's very like prim and proper and quite safe in terms of what sort of things are talked about. But actually, like all his shows involve a lot of sex. What's interesting about this show, I think, is the fact that the women don't really have any big songs. Fuma's wife has has one, but Christine Keeler does it. She sort of has some like filler songs with her flatmate who's also involved, and also just this. It's just this weird thing where it's like he's sort of portrayed as this person who was really badly treated by the judicial system, which is true. But it's also like, but he also Christine Keeler was nineteen when this affair started, and he Ugh. sort of like pimped her out to. John Fumo and also like asked her a lot of inf- to get a lot of information back about the sexual th- and I'm like he sounds like also quite a creepy guy do you know what I mean like very much and I feel like this show sort of like one of the journalists has written it sanitizes him oh but he's got all these nice ballads and he's like this sort of charming man who just happened to be there and I'm like well he mm. wasn't oh, that, oh. <laughs> weird okay do we have a favorite Android weather flop out of all the ones we've talked about. You know, personally, having listened to Love Never Dies most recently. Yeah. And because I mean Ramin and his Obviously. voice and Sierra who's face. gorgeous. Um, I did quite enjoy okay. listening to that. There were some really long songs in it. That boy, Gustav, I couldn't tell if he was like a ten year old boy child. or like a twenty one year old woman. Ten year old boy, I, I believe. Yeah. But yeah, why would you have a kid in a musical for that long? What's oh, on at the end? That's rude. Home time. What is your favourite? Do you have a favourite or a least uh, favourite? No, I do. I, I Sunset Boulevard is definitely my favourite, I think. Mm-hmm. I think although, like, I'm not sure I would enjoy it that much seeing it on stage because I have such a close, like, a love of the source material. Yeah. I do think it's the best. I think he has the best understanding of that. Mm-hmm. something like Stephen Ward seems very removed from his or Jeeves seems very removed from his yeah. kind of like personal love of stuff or at least it feels like that as an audience whereas mm-hmm. Sunset Boulevard being about divas and then obviously all that history like actually yeah. it's like something you know do you know I what bet I mean? that like, would be the nice like the best production to see because yeah, it is yeah. so full and it's so rich and there's such a strong story there thank you so much enjoy your pizza i will be singing you've never had it so good for the rest of the night good (laughs) i'll having an orgy or just just singing i will leave that up to the imagination